0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk.
2: Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it? <laughs> it's our entire life.
1: Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk.
0: You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like it's it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name.
1: Tune into this week's episode of Meet and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus Sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: All right. Hello. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a really important report that was just released by the Open Markets Institute. The report is called Food and Power, Addressing Monopolization in America's Food System. And I've got Claire Kellaway, one of the authors, on the line calling in from D.C. Claire, welcome. Thanks for coming on.
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me on.
3: So this is going to be a pretty meaty episode. This is like a, a dense, serious report, right, <laughs> which I'm so into. Um, before we dive in, um, just real, really quickly, um, for those who haven't heard of it, can you just briefly explain what the Open Markets Institute is?
2: Sure. So the Open Markets Institute is a relatively new think tank that focuses on issues of antitrust and uh, monopoly power across the broader economy. Um, we've done a lot of work on, say, monopolization in the tech sector, is a good example. But there, I focus specifically on issues of corporate power and growing consolidation in food and
3: agriculture. Perfect. Um, I didn't realize it was actually fairly new. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah,
2: new as its own organization.
3: Right. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so normally I'd say like when we're talking about a report, I would want to like just dive into what you found and the statistics. Um, but you know, I was looking at it this morning and I was thinking it might be better to start with why this all matters because I think, it, it's, you know, it's a big topic and I want people to, to kind of hear these statistics and, and understand why, why it's even worth talking to, about, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so, um, you know, from your perspective, why are corporate monopolies in the food system such a big problem? Like what are the negative consequences? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think when you really drive down to the fundamental principles of, you know what we think constitutes an open or competitive market. Um, the issue with monopolies is when you look around agriculture. Uh, you know this basic idea that people can go and receive a fair price for their products that's determined on some open market, you know, competition is really disappearing. Right. And that creates a whole host of issues that ranges, you know, from the economic viability of farming dependent communities all the way to environmental outcomes um, or a lack of resiliency and diversity in our food system, you know, across the chain, just when you have fewer and fewer players um, it can shrink the number of options for things like seeds or, you know, livestock breeds. Um, It also has the effect again, of dissolving this idea of open market, um, which ultimately hurts farmers, often lowering the prices that they receive for their goods. Um, and it also you know, gives a few companies a lot of power to the name of the report, right? Um, which gives them you know, power to tell farmers what sorts of, you know, methods they should use in the case of, like, poultry production. Mm -hmm. Um, Or to, you know, the case of grocery stores, Uh, very powerful companies can actually determine, you know, where their competitors sit on the shelves. There's endless examples of the different ways that um, an increasingly monopolized food system just, yeah, increases the power of a few to the harm of the many players in the system and also us as consumers.
3: Right. And so consumers are affected. And also um, like, are, would you say farmers are are sort of harmed the most by this?
2: I mean, I would say the harms are systemic. Like obviously, yeah. yes, farmers are very much harmed by this. They're very much squeezed on both sides um, from these concentrated sellers and buyers. But um, the development of things like say they, CAFOs obviously has effects on rural communities. And so, you know, the cost of these monopolies, um, they're externalized to the environment and a lot of people. So, yeah, I would say uh, in some cases, everyone stands to care about this. Right, right.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, So, okay, so. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about the actual findings. I mean, some of the statistics in the report are really staggering, the, the charts that you have in here. Um, I want to try to give people a taste of the degree of consolidation that you found. Um, so maybe we can just kind of walk through some of the different sectors and... Um, starting with meat processing, just since that's the first one. Um, So Mm -hmm. um, can you just talk a little bit about what you found in terms of what the consolidation in meat processing looks like today compared to the past?
2: Yeah, I think meat processing is a really good example because it shows how these changes are very recent to some degree, with the Mm. exception of, I guess, poultry, which sort of pioneered what we consider to be Vertically integrated, <laughs> not, in uh, solid, not in a good way. Not in a good way. It's Called sort of the uh, um, the chickenization of the meat industry is often huh. the term uh, that's used. Oh, wow, so, I've never heard that. That's interesting. Yeah, hmm. uh, I did not coin that. From uh, Chris Leonard's the Meat Racket. Definitely would recommend that book for oh, anyone cool. who's interested in these issues. Um, yeah. So I mean, chicken actually, from pure numbers standpoint, can seem less. Uh, consolidated in the mid 80s, four firms controlled about 35% of the market Um, today, or at least in 2015, nearly 60%, 58% of the market was controlled by four firms. Um, But you look at another sector, I think pork, again, really shows the Mm -hmm. uh, dramatic changes that can happen in a short amount of time in the mid 1990s, almost 90% of U.S. hogs were sold on competitive open cash markets. But today, that figure is less than 7%. Um, And this change really happened over the course of essentially a decade. By 2001, um, more than 80% of hogs were controlled by large meat packers. So they're purchased through long-term contracts with farmers um, or through direct ownership. And the number of those large packers that are, you know, offering these contracts um also, you know, contracted dramatically. So in nineteen seventy six, um, the top four hog press processing firms controlled about a third of the market. Um, two thousand fifteen the top four controlled seventy percent.
3: That's crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so that that's a really dramatic change. Um, what I mean in in the case of of um, pork, is it? I mean, is a lot of this consolidation driven by just the switch from smaller, f- like consolidation in these big companies, is what we're talking about, right? Like a few companies controlling mm-hmm. it. But um, did you find that that is driven by the fact that we're moving away from these smaller farms to the the larger hog operations, the like CAFO? Um, system, and that allows bigger companies to control um, more of the market.
2: Right. So they're absolutely related when mm. you have just a few buyers for your product. Like we think of you know, processing companies are ultimately what turn pigs into you know, sausages that right. we buy. And so as a farmer, you need to sell your products to them um, to get your product to market. And when there's, you know, fewer of those buyers, they really begin to set the terms um, for, yeah, buying and selling. Mm. And these, you know, large firms would, you know, tend to prefer to work with larger providers. Right. Um, and so... Well,
3: because they're probably demanding, like, lower prices, too. And, you know, exactly. Right.
2: Right. Exactly. And so they're part and parcel when you lose your market access. um, Again, the loss of these sort of more open markets and toward the system in which these large processing firms uh, contract uh, with growers, um, then yeah, the smaller players are the ones that tend to fall by the wayside and the larger operations are the ones that are able to secure um, contracts With these large packing companies and so i mean that's what we saw over the course of this shift from more competitive hog markets to ones that are predominantly contracted with large meat packers um we've lost 70 percent of u.s hog farmers since the mid-90s and most of those are the smaller producers right yeah Mm -hmm. i mean those numbers are
3: they're really just insane um what about mm-hmm. beef is it was it similar um
2: in in beef um beef is interesting in that it is not uh vertically integrated in the way that poultry and pork are hmm. um so you know up until quite recently beef was a pretty good example of an industry where you had um independent cell independent you know Ranchers mm-hmm. selling to independent feedlots to fatten cows, who then sold to um, meat packers. But again, the meat packers in beef have gained pretty dramatic uh, market share um, since the '80s. They now control about top four control about eighty five percent of the market. Um, we're beginning to see. Some contracting between large meat processors and large feedlots. So there's been a big loss in sort of small to medium um, sized feedlots. And uh, yeah, it hasn't, a lot of people, you know, consider beef to be one of the last holdouts of there still being, you know, some places where you can find cattle being sold uh, on cash markets. Um, but those markets are, you know, cr- shrinking, um, every day. And the meat packers are getting more and more control over the supply chain and thus the uh, competitive price of beef. Um, and so that is sort of one that is, you know, arguably already also, um, lost, but not quite as fully integrated right. in the way that, uh, yes, the other two are. Got it.
3: Um, Mm -hmm. and I mean, milk and dairy, I think we, I definitely want to talk about because I mean, dairy has, um, dairy farming has come up a lot on this show. Um, recently we, we know that, you know, small dairy farmers are just in a total crisis. Um, and we're losing Mm -hmm. thousands of small dairy farms every year. Um, those that, and those that still exist are being paid, sorry, less than, um, the cost of production for their milk. And I mean, it's just a, a really terrible situation for dairy farmers right now. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of consolidation in the industry, what did you find related to dairy and is it re- you know, how does it relate to this sort of situation that we're in?
2: Yeah, no, it's absolutely related in terms of it being an issue of market access and there being fewer and fewer more powerful buyers of Dairy products. Mm. Um, what's been interesting in dairy is that we see, um, a, you know, a lot of dairy is organized in cooperatives. Right. So organizations that you, you know, in theory were created to give farmers more power and sort of organize farmers and um, represent them in these cooperatively owned organizations, uh, but. You know, in recent decades across the country, we've seen issues with some of the largest dairy co-ops making decisions that, you know, are actively harming their members um, or they have, you know, conflict of interest because they own also things like a milk processor.
4: And right. so
2: the co-op then has an incentive to buy milk for less um, and thus can, you know, suppress the prices that they're giving Farmers. There's actually been a few um, lawsuits in this area where we've seen large co-ops, especially Dairy Farmers of America, um, colluding with large milk processors like Dean Foods um, to, you know, sort of collude to lower the prices that they're paying farmers. And again, this issue of consolidation being in many parts of the dairy market. Um, you know, farmers really have one major co op to work with. It's really, you know, they don't have the option to shop around and find a better price for their milk. Right. Um, and so, yes, it's absolutely the same forces of large buyers, shrinking markets. <laughs> And yeah. suppressing prices for farmers. Yeah.
3: And, it, and this, yeah, I mean, this example is, is crazy because of what you said about the, you know, the co-ops were designed to give small farmers power, right, in the beginning. And, mm-hmm. and then it's like that co-op then essentially just becomes the corporation over time that mm-hmm. is then not representing its members. I mean, it's... Is there, like, how are they sort of, like, how are they manipulating the structure of the co-op? Like, I mean, maybe this is too much of a rabbit hole to go down, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> you know, I'm sort of like, how do they do that in a way that, like, aren't there rules about the about how co-ops operate that should prevent this from happening? Maybe mm-hmm.
2: you're... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think what we've seen is these large co-ops, right, exactly like you said, taking on more corporate structures and, you know, not being as democratic in their decision making. Um, and thus, yeah, really having executives make decisions similar to any kind of, um, corporation. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
3: Um, it's just, yeah, it's like sort of maddening that is like designed in this way, in this one place, right. Mm-hmm. And then it's just completely is. Acting, it's serving the complete opposite goal that it was designed to serve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. Um, okay, so let's um, let's talk about one more um, aspect before we go to break. Um, the mm-hmm. the farm inputs. I really want to get to this one um, because I think this is this is one area where I think people actually maybe think about consolidation more. They think about you know the same companies owning. Seeds, this, you know, the same company selling the seeds, the pesticides that are paired with those seeds. And mm-hmm. um, so, in terms of inputs, um, was there a big change in consolidation or is, has that sort of been pretty um, kind of the par for the course for a long time?
2: No, there, yeah, there is absolutely. <laughs> no, you're
3: like, no, it's changed so much. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I don't know if these. That's oh, I think they are. Well, we could talk report, about mergers
3: I like too. I mean, there's, I, I right, guess when exactly. you talk about, so yeah.
2: Mergers is where, like we think of these large corporations, like a company like uh, Monsanto or a Dow DuPont um, didn't just naturally evolve to be as, you know, dominant as they are. A lot of their growth has been from buying up smaller independent seed companies. Um I think Dow DuPont, Dow and DuPont before they merged. Right, it's so right in the name, sort of, the merger. Yes, right? exactly. There's <laughs> for one one part of it, several really concerning mega mergers in this space in just the past two years. But leading up to that point, um, there were you know a ton of mergers that were really left uh, unregulated. Um, so Dow and DuPont, you know, together purchased over 40 seed and agrochemical companies over the span of two years. Um, Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer, uh, also has acquired more than 60 independent seed companies since the late 1980s. Um, And so, yes, it's absolutely a product of, you know, failed market regulation that these companies were allowed to acquire so many of their competitors Um, to the point today where we have, really concerning mergers between some of the largest agrochemical providers, Bayer, um, and dominant firms like Monsanto that we've seen, you know, even around 2015, they were called sort of the big six, the largest six seed in agrochemical companies. And that's, you know, since shrunk to four. Um, and so it sort of seems like a unrelenting series of mergers that has Really made an issue of consolidated power uh, much much worse,
3: right? Yeah, and I mean that I'm just looking at this this uh, one graph in the report right now, and you know it's at the change the change in market share of the largest four global herbicide and pesticide firms in 2008 was 59 percent. In 2017, it's 84 percent. I mean that's mm-hmm. that's close to 90, like <laughs> 80 oh, more than percent. <laughs> that's a really that's a striking number. Um, Right.
2: And what's interesting about these charts is they can in some degree even underestimate the amount of market control that, say, one firm like Bayer, previously Monsanto, um, has in the sense that a lot of these companies work together to cross-license different, you know, chemicals or different seed traits. Um, and so I think the stat is Monsanto sells um, the traits that Monsanto owns and then cross licenses with other seed purveyors are found in 80 percent of all corn and um, soy seeds in the U.S. And right. so, yeah, these issues are, you know, you drill down to different sections of the market and um, there are true monopolies to some degree that exist.
3: Right, absolutely. Um, okay, so we need to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the solutions um, that you lay out in the report. Uh, we'll be right back. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. EMI is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Cotbalt Cave Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit EMIUSA.com.
4: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Sari Kamen. And I'm Leah Kurtz. And together we host Food Without Borders here on HRN. Immigrants make our food system vibrant, diverse, and delicious. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about how food connects them to their past
2: as we explore
4: what it's like to be an immigrant in the U.S. today. You can find Food Without Borders wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All
3: right, we're back. You're listening to the farm report on heritage radio network. So I'm talking to Claire Calloway from the open markets Institute about a new report, food and power. Um, before the break, we were talking a lot about some of the stats in the report, um, some of the findings on consolidation in agriculture. Um, and I want to, there, uh, a big chunk of the report is dedicated to outlining what, what the open markets Institute sees as some solutions to this issue. Um, And one thing that stood out to me um, that you said earlier when we were talking about mergers of some of the agrochemical companies, you said this is sort of a result of failed market regulation. Um, So I guess my first question is, are there already antitrust laws on the books that just aren't being enforced?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, you could argue absolutely. So what has changed and in some ways allowed for a lot of this Market consolidation is the way that we interpret our antitrust laws. Oh, okay, um, the antitrust laws lay out a lot of different provisions that you know could have stopped a lot of these mergers um, had they been you know interpreted in different ways. The name, the main change has been that since the '80s, um, regulators have primarily assessed mergers based on what is called the consumer welfare standard that looks very, very narrowly at how a merger will impact um, primarily prices that uh, consumers pay, um, or to some extent, like, variety. Um, But, yeah, very, very narrowly on, essentially, will this merger increase prices for consumers? Um, And obviously that has been an issue in that it overlooks um, market structure and the increase in power that these uh, corporations will have or um, other anti-competitive practices that, you know, can flourish (laughs) as you have uh, fewer and fewer competitors. Um, Yeah, that seems like such a
3: narrow, like, metric just that one tiny thing like is it going to raise prices or not
2: (laughs) right and i think um some uh, lena khan who got her start at the open markets institute published a really interesting paper in this regard when you look at amazon um amazon's a really good example of how the consumer welfare standard really misses um what can become like a huge uh growth, accumulation of market power in the sense that uh, Amazon actually is a lost leader. They lose money. They sell things um, at a loss, you know, to expand their market share. And mm-hmm. you could argue that a company like Walmart does very much the same thing. Um, we didn't really talk about groceries, right. but that's, you know, another area of this report um, that's very consolidated. And looking at just prices totally misses the effect of you know the growth of a company like Walmart um that can then use their market power to put you know especially rural smaller grocers out of business um which has major implications for you know competition in groceries um it also has major issues for uh, sellers and workers who have uh Fewer places to work, fewer places to sell their goods, um, and then manufacturers who are reliant on a corporation like Walmart um, are forced to cut their prices, and normally that comes out of workers' pockets. So all that is to say, um, focusing just on you know the cost of goods misses a lot when we're assessing antitrust um, regulation.
3: Right. Right. So, mm-hmm. so what does the Open Markets Institute see as um, a solution to this issue? Is it about changing the way that these antitrust laws are interpreted?
2: Um, yes, I mean, yeah, So this is something that we're actually putting out um, in the coming days. So stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> sort of laying out um, what we would consider to be uh, stronger standards for interpreting antitrust laws. So a lot of this, you know, can be done um, through law enforcement, you know, at the DOJ or at the FTC. Um, You know, they could act to interpret things differently. What's difficult and challenging is that there are a lot of sort of bad history of of cases. so having you know many, many court decisions that have ruled in favor of this consumer welfare standard um, can make it difficult to try and win a case um, interpreting these laws in you know ways of old or new ways. Um, and so part of this you know is also going to take uh, different judges who mm. have a different view of antitrust to begin ruling um, in a different way. And, you know, I guess should that, you know, all those avenues not prove, um, useful, you know, Congress can also direct, um, the courts and law enforcement to, you know, interpret these laws differently. And so you could also, um, have Congress pass something that says, you know, you should interpret these laws, um, in XYZ way.
3: Interesting. I I was going to ask you about that because, um, I mean, some um, legislators are actually talking about this. I mean, especially, you know, as sort of things are kicking off for the presidential election. I mean, it's far away, but um, (laughs) (laughs) it seems like everyone's talking about it already. Um, But, you know, I saw um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have both um said they want to crack down on consolidation in agriculture just this week um mm-hmm. Bernie was in Iowa and he said he not only backs a moratorium on mergers in agriculture but uh we have to go further we have to start breaking them up um and i, I i'm wondering like do you feel like there is some political energy that may actually lead to changes and and can can leg- like policymakers really um make a big difference
2: I mean, definitely it seems like a lot, there is a lot of talk, um, Mm -hmm. which is, yeah, it is exciting. In terms of um, things like, you know, tackling meatpacker consolidation, um, one of the laws on the books that we do have is the Packers and Stockyards Act, um, which I guess this isn't necessarily tied to, you know, breaking them up. Um, but in terms of regulating some of the worst anti-competitive practices in the meat industry, um, there has been talk very recently, you know, about 10 years ago, um, when Mm. President Obama first came into office about how do we set different rules within USDA Mm. um, to better regulate the meat industry. Um, Ultimately, those rules, were significantly watered down um, after they were introduced and then eventually passed at the very end of the administration. Um, They're called the Fair Pharma Practices Rules, or GYPSA, uh, is maybe how the media has referred to this whole process. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a really good example of uh, administrative action at sort of the USDA agency level um, that was sort of attempted uh, and so, yeah, there are definitely things that can be done, um, whether it's through uh, executive agencies um, or through Congress. Well, and that
3: and it, there's a, another part to that story later, right, that um, mm-hmm. then, you know, I think I don't I don't totally remember the details on this. You'll have to correct me. But I think Trump then reversed that. Right. And and moved GYPSA to another agency
0: Right. So yeah. there's sort
2: of two parts of this. Yeah. There is GYPSA itself, which is the Packers and Stockyards administration, okay. um, an agency within USDA. And then there's the GYPSA rule changes. And so uh, the Trump administration has rolled back both. Um, they uh, withdrew the sort of interim final rules that would have uh, made some changes to how the Packers and Stockyards Act uh, is enforced. But then it also dissolved um, gypta, the agency, entirely and put its duties within agricultural marketing services. Hmm. Um, right. Which is a huge, it's much, yeah, it's very easy to dissolve an agency and shift its duties elsewhere. And I think it could be challenging to um, bring that agency back. And so it is a huge concern in terms of having an enforcer to protect, um, ranchers from these, you know, increasingly powerful companies.
3: Right. Well, and that sort of example kind of really illustrates how much it does matter who's in power, how much things can Mm -hmm. change. Right. Um, depending Mm -hmm. on who's, um, who's calling the shots because Mm the sort of changed back and forth. Right. (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, What about um, any other solutions we didn't talk about other than, like, you know, sort of interpreting these laws differently or um, having policymakers, you know, in Congress um, say that the the laws should be enforced differently? Were there other solutions you wanted to talk about?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a few. So outside of um, the realm of, you know, assessing mergers or. Um, outside the Packers and Stockyards Act. There's also different kinds of anti-competitive practices that could be uh, cracked down on. Um, I think an interesting one is the monopoly that equipment manufacturers have on repair markets.
3: Uh, yeah. um,
2: that This is really interesting. Yeah.
3: And I just saw a story recently um, On farmers who are fighting back in the the sort of like right to repair movement, right? Yeah,
2: Yeah. exactly. Um, This is an issue in farm equipment, but also uh, it's interesting because it also unites um, like anyone who has a computer or a phone and wants to repair their um, tech. Right, you have to go.
3: Right, that's funny. It's it's, that's actually a great like comparison because everyone can understand that feeling of being like, "Oh my god, they make my iPhone to break, and I have to keep bringing it in." (laughs) Right,
2: right, and it's a leveraging of things like the patent law, so saying, you know, our software is patented, and so Mm -hmm. we don't want you to have access to it. Um, But when tractors you know, cars, all different kinds of machinery are run by computers, um, need to sort of hack into the frame <laughs> to fix even really basic things that farmers were able to do before. Um, and it creates, you know, not just extra cost for, um, you know, having either someone, you know, tele-come in or, like, physically come and fix your tractor, uh, but it can also um, increase, you know, time and create delays um, which is really risky for farmers, and mm. so yeah, this ability to get access to the code to fix computer-based issues with um, farm equipment is really important.
3: Yeah, that that's a really a really interesting one. I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was a story on Civil Eats that was um, talking about the right to repair movement. If people are interested um, in reading more about that, um, okay, so. We have to wrap up, unfortunately. Um, before we go, um, Claire, where can people go to get the full report if they want to really dig further into it? Because, like you said, we didn't even talk about there's like grocery. Um, mm-hmm. There was, uh, remind me, there's a couple other sections that we didn't even get to. Yeah, there's
2: <laughs> grocery. Um, there's uh, cafeteria operating. Oh, right. So yeah, like the food consolidation service. Consolidation of. Right? Because mm-hmm. um, of a niche, but definitely very important as a lot of people are interested in farm to school, and there are some monopoly issues there that can hinder um, that movement. Uh, and then, you know, interesting things like the checkoff programs that um, are supposed to promote, like the Got Milk program that all farmers mm. pay into to uh, advertise their products um, that. Some of that money is actually being used to fund um, lobbying organizations of the largest uh, meat packers and um, food processors. So, yeah, lots of things in there. Um, and you can find it at the Open Markets Institute website, openmarketsinstitute.org, um, under our market and policy reports section.
3: Perfect. Um, Thank you so much for being here and, and talking us through this important report. I really appreciate it. Yeah,
2: thank you so much for having me.
3: All right, and thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday.